welcome back to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. Welcome to season three of A Moment of Bach. We are glad to be back. Today's moment that Christian has chosen is from the recent Netherlands Bach Society interpretation of De Kunst der Fuge, The Art of Fugue. Good Vibrations came out, and Paul McCartney heard the new Beach Boys single. He said something like, how are we supposed to compete with this now? (laughs) What can we do after this? Uh, This is what I thought of when I heard the organist of the Netherlands Box Society, Leo von Dusselaar, describing the art of fugue. He says about Bach in his later years, after the Goldberg variations were written, This was the only thing left for him to write. In other words, Bach was already stretching the limits of what could be done with counterpoint and his musical style in general. And this was a logical conclusion of a lot of different aspects of Bach's work. But unlike the Goldberg variations, it's not really for an instrument. This has always been one of the most interesting things to me about the Art of Fugue. The Art of Fugue is arranged in a series of fugues, starting with Contrapunctus One, and the main fugue subject you hear at the beginning is the one that is developed upon and transformed throughout the entire collection. Famously, the piece is unfinished. We have the autographed manuscript of this piece, and there's a note by his son, Carl Philip Emanuel. And the translation into English is, while working on this fugue, which introduces the name Bach, B-A-C-H, that is the notes B-flat, A-C, B-natural, in the counter subject, the composer died. So whether or not that's really what happened, it's not like he keeled over right when he got to, to that moment in the art of fugue. He was doing other things also. But it is kind of captivating and has and has captivated many people, and some composers have finished it. And there exist a lot of different arrangements of the end of the Art of Fugue. Yeah, I think the allure of unfinished works is always kind of interesting to musicians. A famous example is the Mozart Requiem, which is famously unfinished, and there have been a lot of composers over the years that have completed it. One was Mozart's tutor, right? Or was it his... Um, I think a student. A student, maybe. Yeah. Zeus Meyer. Zeus Meyer, yeah. Who completed 
the Lacrimosa movement, which Mozart pretty famously died while composing, as dramatized by the movie Amadeus from the 80s. But this is an interesting example because if you listen to versions, which the Netherlands Bach Society does not do this, but if you listen to versions which take the literal notes off of Bach's page, then the music just ends. But yeah, Christian, it's it's also like, besides the fact that it's incomplete, it's also not really even maybe intended for performance at all, right? Like you said, there's no instruments marked in the first fugue, for example. There's just these four separate lines. None of them have any instrument marking. It's almost just kind of a study rather than a performance piece. It works for keyboard. You know, it works for harpsichord or organ. Most of the movements work for harpsichord, although a couple of them don't. Mm. You could play it with a lot of different instrumentations. But the reason why you and I were both, I think, so excited to see Netherlands Box Society come out with their video is because of the really interesting interpretation. Right. Any version of the Art of Fugue is going to be an arrangement kind of by default. But we never expected something this interesting, I think. I think this is really delightfully unexpected surprise. So what do you mean by that? Mostly I'm interested and surprised by the use of voices in the, in this arrangement. The music director, Shunsuke Seto, arranged this performance. Everything from the performance venue and the lighting and the orchestration and arrangement of voices is all very precise and thought out. As the recording moves along, subconsciously you notice that the lighting is changing in the space. Yeah, and there are some of the... I mean, I don't even know if, this, if it was all done in one take, and maybe it wasn't, but there are definitely some movements that flow into the next movement in a single take like that's one thing i noticed while watching it just mm. this sort of artful yep. flow that was happening where the camera would sort of like linger somewhere on a final note but then shift as something else started with a different little like instrument group on the other side of the room yes it's such a great decision that, that shunsuke sato made because it is possible to listen with some interest to an entire performance of the art of fugue on the keyboard and then, then you're experiencing it very cerebrally and you're hearing all the counterpoints still. But you could argue that something is lost there because all the parts are the same timbre. So just to have four different instruments playing, or in this case, singing also, that adds a lot. And it's more in line with what Bach would have would have used. But what strikes me the most is that about Bach and his compositional style is that he wrote the most abstract piece of music that that could be written in hundreds of years of his time, but also the most practical. He did both. And that's that's bizarre to me. As a younger person, I remember thinking about the art of fugue and canons and fugues in general and thinking like Bach was the most puzzly and cerebral composer and abstract composer, and that's very cool. But what I failed to realize 
at that point in my musical maturity is that Bach was also practical. For part of his life, he had to churn out a new cantata every week. Whatever instrumentation was on hand, that's what he used. Every single note that had to have text, like by, sung by a choir or a soloist, had to be composed according to that word. In other words, he wrote vocal music, and he wrote instrumental music, and he wrote things practically. So why did he write this? We have to assume that, like Van Dusselaar is saying, like it's, it's the logical conclusion of, what, of his life's work in this way. The Mass in B minor was sort of his showcase of his most favorite and best vocal works that he ever wrote. Mm -hmm. But this is something even more nebulous. It's just counterpoint. There's not even an instrument. It's just the musical style and texture of the time, just without any fancy rendering. It's all one, it's all right brain, right? Or is it left brain? I always get those mixed up. Right brain, mm, right? I guess. Right's like creativity. Oh, and then left. Left <laughs> is like... All, then it's all it's, left brain. Yeah, I think it yeah. would be left. Yeah, I mean, because Bach was, a, was an amazing pictorial composer when it comes to text, especially the way he would set text. And I mean, he was very creative in the way he would set text. And if there was any text in the cantata, he would set it for the voices and instruments in a very creative way, right? You have all kinds of instruments doing all these interesting figures based on like where the text is about leaping or whatever. You know, it's just, I mean, he's, he does that all the time in the cantatas. So here is an example of a whole big piece by Bach where there's absolutely none of that. So he's completely free of the pictorial thing. So it's all cerebral. I'm thinking of it in like a video game context. It'd be like, it's all gameplay, no story, you know? Hmm. Like sometimes you just want to just play like a game and just experience the like flow state of just the gameplay, the primal rhythmic sort of thing of just playing a game and, and the strat, like the, the like fast strategy of playing something like an, like a platformer or something like that, rather than something like a lot of games are, which is more story-based. I know I love, I love games that have story, story-based stuff, but you know, sometimes you just want to like jump around and collect stuff, you know? Sometimes you just need also to just project your own current state onto something. And a Bach cantata, a Bach cantata that's very much about the angels announcing the birth of Christ will only really map to your emotional state if you're already joyful or whatever, or it can, or it changes your emotional state. It can change. It's like, it's like trying to figure out what the best piece of music is to listen to when you're sad. Is it sad music that you wallow in? Or are you trying to make yourself feel better by listening to something more positive? I think people have different answers to that question. My answer would be something like this because it's not really emotional. It kind of just like, it's something else. It takes your mind off any emotion. Yeah, you, you really can map a, your own emotion to yeah, it. Yeah, you just think you think hard about it. And yeah, I mean, every I think that Shunsuke Seito talks about this probably, if I'm remembering correctly from the, the video, but you know, he's always talking about emotion in Bach. And like, this isn't, and I'm not trying to say this is unemotional music. It's just like you say, Christian, I'm, I'm agreeing with you that you can map emotion onto it. You project it onto it. I think most good absolute music is like that. And by that, I mean non-programmatic music, right? Just something that you can identify with on a very core level that's not trying to be about something on its own. I think this is one of the most profound powers of music is that it can be on paper about nothing, but it can contain everything in terms of the spectrum of human response and emotion.
and sometimes it's even more interesting when it doesn't specify. Every decision that a composer makes, the title, let's say a piece is like completely instrumental, but you give it a title like Shining Star. Well, now you've, you've given us one way to think of the piece, but you've also closed a few doors about how we titled it, you know. And Debussy wrote those piano preludes and didn't write the title until the, until the end. There were no title on the top. And the titles were at the end so that even the pianists could play through and form their own opinion abstractly. And you know what's great about those two? If you look at that, at the end, it's not only that the title is at the end, but also the title is at the end in small font in parentheses, mm. as if to say like, and this is kind of, you know, just if, if you want, if you just, if you want it, here you go. This, this is what this could be about. It's just so delightfully non-committal, you know? Yeah, so, so it almost makes us think, well, what if it's the opposite? Like, what if the art of fugue is merely a compositional exercise? Is it a compositional exercise? Yes, absolutely it is. But being at this high of a level of what Bach was working with, it hardly comes across as an etude of, of any kind. No, because it is, as you say, of the highest order of fugue. I mean, he called it that, the art of fugue. So he, like, he knew he wasn't messing around. So with something so abstract, you have such a freedom to figure out how you're going to perform it. And that's why we're so impressed by the choice that the Netherlands Bach Society made. Because I don't know about you, Alex, but when I watch this video, when I, when I, wa when I sit down to watch most Netherlands Bach Society recordings or videos, I expect like of a cantata. I expect I'm probably going to hear a very good performance of this cantata interpreted in a style that is very honest to what we believe the music would have sounded like but also with some a little flair, but mm -hmm. mostly just very good and honest to what we think Bach would have done. Right. But here, Bach wouldn't have probably thought to use voices and then later voices with instruments on these, you know, untexted lines, this vocalese type of thing. It's really unexpected, but also I think it makes perfect sense because Bach is always accused of writing for the voice like it's an instrument, like an oboe or a violin, right? right. That's always the accusation. Bach never gives me anywhere to breathe. Bach writes for me like a violin or an oboe or a flute. Bach did write a lot of lines that are flute-like and bassoon-like and everything like that. And that, that leads to some interesting music and some interesting problems for performers, certainly. So I think it's a bit of a brilliant leap to just say, well, this music, which is usually performed by keyboard, but it consists entirely of linear parts, could go to the voices. The voices which carry so much of the weight of, of the meaning and carry so much of the burden of storytelling and the cantatas and everything like that. What if they were just narrating completely abstractly and just as an arranger that's very exciting because it's just like what kind of timbres can i use and i'm sure that shinsuke seto was having a blast figuring out what combinations worked what vowels because they're always switching right. it's just a really well done and creative arrangement on its own yeah but it's also like you know a lot of modern composers have done 
pretty wild things with the voice and he it's also like interesting to see the restraint that he uses in this because he could have gone off the deep end here but he keeps it pretty tasteful you know you can imagine i mean it, it doesn't sound once you use the voices in that way it's true that it sounds a little unbaroque right but the fact that they're singing with like the proper timbre for the for the instrument that they're matching I mean, it's obviously Baroque style, so it's kind of it's kind of interesting. It's almost like we're listening to some kind of lost Baroque sound that you never hear, hmm. because this, cause stylistically, it's very authentically Baroque. But you'd never hear this in Baroque music. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah. It's just it's so interesting. And there are going to be purists out there who maybe don't appreciate the way this sounds because it's not expected. But I I don't feel that way at all. I think this is very fitting. It's the human voice. It's since Bach wrote for the voice instrumentally anyway. Here, yeah. here we are using the voice instrumentally. Yeah. And let's, let's also agree that Bach did write idiomatically for instruments. We're not saying, or at least I'm not, I think you'd probably agree. We're not saying that like Bach wrote the same for every instrument and for the voice, and it's all just like this twisty counterpoint stuff. Well, it is twisty counterpoint, but like he wrote flute lines that sound like flute lines. He knew what the timbre of the flute sounded like and what what little licks sound good on the flute and trumpet and timpani, of course. Obviously, you have to write a certain way and all this stuff. So he could write, he can orchestrate. But it is true that the vocal lines were very twisty and difficult in nature. But you know what thing you didn't say yet, Christian, is that this work, it's not just composed of only like fugues that are all laid out the same way, but it's composed of fugues that have different numbers of like subjects to them, and then also some canons, and then some fugues that have inverted subjects and some canons that are mirrored and things like that. And if you're familiar with the Goldberg variations from some of our previous episodes, then you know why Bach is drawn to this kind of thing. Yeah, it has a very compelling structure to it. The structure of the Art of Fugue is a little bit mysterious as well and has led a lot of scholars to theorize about it. Stefano Greco is one of these theorists that uh, gave a talk at UCLA once, and in his performances of the Art of Fugue, he's sort of come up with a new theory on the organization of the movements, and I won't say anything else because it's his work, but that can be found online as well. Cool. You know, Bach thought of that stuff when he was arranging or organizing the different movements he cared a lot about numerology. I'm sure it made sense to him. Although, as we know, it's not finished, but I'm sure there was a structure in Bach's mind that he was going for for that. Absolutely. So part of the interpretation of this arrangement also comes down to dynamics and control of, of musical line and when to use the voices, as we said, what vowels to sing on. So I'd like to draw your attention to one small moment. At the end of the first movement, we're really barreling into an ending. But we pass through one gentle chord that's completely alone, like a little island, surrounded by silence on both sides. And in this arrangement, Shunsuke Sato has chosen to make that chord extra soft. And then we're strong to the end afterwards. It's very effective. Harmonically, this works so well and complements the harmony because the chord before it leads to it, 
this chord in particular, the soft one, we call this the 6-4, the cadential 6-4 chord because the intervals mm -hmm. above the bottom note are a fourth and a sixth. So then that, that chord must move through another chord. It must move to a chord with its notes from the bass, an interval of a third and a fifth, and we get that. Those chords are all non-final. We call them dominant in function. And we finally return to the tonic at the end. And the suspense of, of doing that and the interpretation by the Netherlands Bach Society of this moment, I think, is really compelling. And now, here is the ending of that first movement of the Art of Fugue. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to see this wonderful staging of The Art of Fugue by the Netherlands Bach Society, please see the link in the episode description. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. And also, listener, we want you to know that we recently announced a Patreon that would be supporting us in a, in a small way. We found out that you need to use the link in the podcast episode description to get there. We're still working on why you can't just search us on the Patreon website. But we'll update you as we go on that. But you should be able to, if you want to do that, you can follow the link that we're, that we're giving and just use the hyperlink. Okay, Alex, what will be episode two of season three? Well, because this art of fugue is just so amazing, I want to dig into it a little more on a different moment. And I'll be talking about the very ending so, listener, I encourage you again to just check out the whole thing. I mean, it's it's so cool. See the link. Until next time, enjoy those moments. <laughs>